Well, we are studying through a, a series of messages that we've titled, entitled Enchanted, and I'm so grateful for the feedback that you guys have been sharing with us and, and how this is addressing matters of life. Um, we started this in the beginning of the year with the understanding that you're going you're gonna to venture out and do life this year. God's people are going to do that. Every one of us, you're going to be doing life this year. And the concern that we have as pastors is in, in the land that you're going to dwell in, you're going to experience certain things. And each time frame of our lives has got a little bit of different stuff in it. You know, if, if you're 70 years old, you know, you experience some things moving through life. If you're 20 years old today, you're experiencing some things moving through life. But you're not necessarily experiencing exactly the same things and they're not affecting you exactly the same way. And there has been a massive shift in our culture that has characterized a different way of approaching life, a different way of doing things. And it's gotten rapidly normalized. I think the information age that we live in has helped that. I think the fact that you don't just bump into an idea every once in a while. It, it comes to you constantly you know sort of the devices in our pockets are almost in my mind if I ever write a book about this one day I may have a a, an iPhone hanging from an IV bag you know that just goes into your arm because it's just a constant drip and that has an effect on us it affects and shapes the way we think about life and how we're doing life and so the intention in this series is is to the better give us a lay of the land and uh, we're spending a good bit of time getting familiar with the land. And so we're, we're going to turn a corner probably next week. We'll turn a, a corner quite a bit. But I, I want to give you a better understanding this week as we move through a couple of facets of this enchantment. And Peter shared some more about this enchantment element uh, last week. I, I want to talk about the disorienting power of enchantment. Right? There, there is this ability for us to become disoriented as we move through life, right? So let's go back to our passage that we've been drawing some insights from in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember, this is Moses giving wisdom to God's people before they move into this new land. And so there was a moment to stop and say, hey, before you navigate this new territory, you're going to need to know some things and be aware of some things. And this is where we've been drawing some insights from won't read the whole passage. Just look, let's just look at chapter 6, verse 10. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees, that you did not plant. And when you eat it and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. You shall serve and by his name you shall swear. Let's pray. Father, we 
don't argue with you for a moment that we are people in need of wisdom, insights from beyond our own. And Lord, this morning, would you give us ears to hear? But what an indictment you brought as you engaged crowds and what you saw in them was people who had ears but couldn't hear, eyes but they didn't see. And Lord, we don't want to be those people. We don't want to be blind to what you are doing. We don't want to be deaf to what you're saying. So even this morning, Lord, would you pull back veils and would you give great sensitivity by the Spirit to us? Lord, thank you for passages like this that remind us that you are a God with purposes for us. There are lands for us to dwell in. There are good things for us to receive and for us to have in our lives. And God, thank you for leading us into those places. Lord, lead us with wisdom and with all the the blessing you had in mind. God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's this massive headline in this passage. There's this great potential that God would lead us into a place that he, this is his idea, right? This isn't, they don't have to go here. God is steering them here into a place that's full of all kinds of good things. And there's this massive headline about the potential that when you get there, you could forget God. That's the world that we live in. That's the world that they lived in. That there's this potential impact that somehow people who were created for God could forget God. Now, now what, what happens when man forgets God? What happens with this creature that out of nowhere God created? Let us make man and God creates man, sets him in this world, oriented toward God, about God, for God. What what happens when suddenly that creature begins to forget God? He's still alive. He's still doing life. But God has been misplaced. God is not in the same place for that creature that he originally was. What happens is man becomes disoriented. That's a good word for us. Disoriented. That word means to confuse. By removing or obscuring something that has guided a person, a group, or a culture. It comes from a French word. That word means to cause to lose one's bearings. Literally, disoriented means to turn from the east, right? The east is the orient. To, there's something about finding a place of orientation. So the east, the, the sunrise, was a, a means for folks to find their bearings. Something that they could locate that would make them then look at themselves and go, Ah, oh, okay, where am I? But they had to first find the east, in order to do that. And, and in our culture, things are shifting. Things that once guided peoples and groups and cultures, it's all shifting today. And you and I are bumping into a fresh set of definitions and new ideas and things that were once accepted are no longer accepted. And ideas are changing. And it's almost like if you try to stick with those old ideas, you will be met with some severe hostility. And you and I are going to navigate our way across this, this land. Now, we've kind of married this study to a little bit of an allegorical setting, this, this land, this land of Kairos. 
I want to introduce you to a, a character, if you will, that you will encounter as we walk through this land of Kairos. It is the character Deat who is in this land. This mysterious power. When I say Deat, you might, you know, because you've been educated by Star Wars, you might think the Force. Here, let's read this story line together for us. Once upon a time in the land of Kairos, there was a mysterious and promising power called Deat. Deat promised power, influence, control, and pleasure. And it had an addictive quality that gave way to endless curiosity. One could not find the depths of Deat, though one plunged into it tirelessly. But Deat produced a strange side effect. The more man tasted of Deat, the more he craved and the more it persuaded him and and shaded his perspective. Slowly, the world changed hue. And colors that were once clear became obscured and forgotten. Man didn't know that as he was being given many new sights to see, he was also going blind to some things. But this was hard to be conscious of because with ever-increasing information came more and more to look at and to be enamored with until one day he could no longer see certain colors and began to have a fading memory of what those colors looked like and how they informed and clarified the landscape of life. That's kind of interesting our character's name here, Deat. Deat is the Hebrew word used in the scriptures for knowledge. And it's interesting that we live in the information age because if you read that little paragraph carefully, it, it kind of highlights the intrigue, the bottomless pit of information, doesn't it? Right, the, no matter how many times, I mean, I, I can remember... Uh, when the internet first came out and you clicked on to AOL and that strange sound happened, you know, and, and I don't know, it was, it was weird. It, I felt like I was like on a Star Trek moment. Like I was being transported into the cyber universe. And, you know, no matter how many times I clicked and clicked, I could never find the edges of this place. And that just enamored me. I can just remember that. It's like, wow, you can, just, you can just sit on this thing forever and find more and more stuff you've never seen before. All right, this was 1990s, early 1990s when this was happening. And so you can, today, right, we're, there's information. And yet we're never, we're never not curious about it. No matter how much we've absorbed, tomorrow morning we'll need a fresh feed again of exploring Deat. And never coming to an end of its interestingness. But what's, what's intriguing is the temptation of the devil in the Garden of Eden, Eden was to tempt them with the tree of Deat. That's what it was. And that, that, that helps me with sort of understanding this sort of this outbreak of sin that is in our culture and it's something you and I have to manage from from its inception its first moment was for the enemy to come and convince a people 
to eat from the tree of Deat. Just, just log on, man. That's what Satan was, was doing. But what was, what's interesting is it was the, the tree of Deat, the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it's not as though Adam and Eve wouldn't have had any knowledge of good and evil, right? They, they would have had knowledge of good and evil. The issue is where they would have gotten it from. They would have gotten it from God. He would have set everything in its place. He would have made their minds aware of it. He would have been able to explain the existence of good and evil with him being the center of the universe. Everything that was either to be seen as good or everything that was to be seen as evil would have found its reference point in him. And so they would have seen God at the very same moment that they saw that's good and that's evil. But when the devil came along, he offered them an interesting deal. He offered them to cut out the middleman. He offered the removal of Yahweh. Let's, you, can, you can have that without God. And so now... There is no God, if you will. There is no reference point. There is just this concept of good and evil. But God has been removed. And this is the origin of sin. This was the original temptation. And so from that moment on, man has become disoriented. Before that, he was oriented around God. When he looked at the garden, when he looked at his role in creation, when he looked as a man at a woman and tried to discern, how do I treat her? What do I do with this garden? What's the purpose of life? When he answered any of those questions, whatever he went to label good, God was what provided the orientation for him to figure out what was good and what was evil. Until sin came in. And now, Adam and Eve are disoriented. They no longer face God. They don't face east anymore and then go, okay, all right, well, if that's east, then everything else I know where it is. They, they no longer do that. And so man has become self-oriented. And he labels good and bad out of his own personage, out of who he is, out of how he sees life, how he understands life. And of course, that's, that's shifting from person to person, right? Because we all have different agendas. We all have different things that we want. We, we, we're after certain stuff in life and you may not be after the same stuff that I want. Kind of you got your own good life and I've got my own good life. And, and, and we have problems when your version of your good life clashes with my version of my good life. And we can't seem to work that out. But you understand Adam and Eve would have never had those kinds of issues. Because their existence was oriented around God. Today, the world that you and I live in. Man, man needs an external reference point to be oriented around. He, he cannot self-orient. But yet, man is in love with the idea that he can. 
Do you guys remember that, uh, you know, that goofy, weird compass that Jack Sparrow had in Pirates of the Caribbean? You guys remember this? If you ever saw the movie or read the books, I guess, as well. He's got this compass. You know, most compasses, they, they exist to orient us around the magnetic pole of the earth, right? So there's an external reference point. There's something transcendent that that compass reaches out there and it says, okay, this is fixed and now that will tell you where you are. That's what your compass does. But Jack Sparrow had a weird compass. He'd open it up and it would spin around and around and around and then it would point in a direction. And if you watched enough of the movies, you came to realize, and I think he explains this at some point, that the arrow actually points in the direction of whatever it was that Jack Sparrow desired the most. So when he wanted to figure out where to sail his boat, he'd stand up there by the steering wheel and he'd flip his compass open and he'd just see wherever it pointed. And he knew that over there is the thing that I desire most. And he would point his ship in that direction. He was the source. He was the orientation. He was self-oriented. And we live in a culture today that that makes perfect sense to the culture. That's not seen as weird. It's not seen as problematic. It's, it's seen as right. And so this massive amount of age of authenticity and hyper self-individualism that we've been talking about, it, it reinforces the idea that when you go to set a course in your life, you have to look inward to see what it is that you really want. And what you want is as valid as what anybody else wants. And, and that's seen as just the normal way to do life. But here's, here's the massive problem with that. Two, one is we were intended to be oriented around God as creatures. But secondly, functionally, if your orientation is around you, what does that do for everything outside of you? What, what does it do to the world that you live in? What does it do to your relationships with other people if the world is oriented around you? Right? This is so that those two words that we've been playing with in the last couple of weeks, this idea of imminence and transcendence. Right? Imminent things are the things that just pertain to you. They're, they're your world. They're, they're kind of the box that you live in. They're the people that are most influential in your own personal story that are going to help you flourish in some way. And then there's these transcendent things, immaterial, spiritual things, God, God's kingdom, people over there, people way hundreds of years from now. That do, you, do you only take into account your own personal story, your own personal flourishing when you go to make decisions, when you pull your compass out and decide, what's the right thing for me to do in any given moment? When, when Adam and Eve become disoriented from God... How many of you guys know that that one decision did not take into account everybody else's well-being? Can you go with me on that one? When they thought about, should we eat of that tree? They weren't thinking, well, you know, we're about to make a decision. So let's make this decision in light of how it affects God, right? Transcendent thing. Of how it affects our relationship our children, our grandchildren, generations to come, the future of humanity. Let's, let's stop and make that decision based on transcendent things. That's not what they did, is it? Let's make this decision based on imminent things. What will this do for us, for me, right here, 
and right now. And we're still making decisions like that. That's an influential way of thinking about life. But it has a cost. It costs other people. You know, I don't think anybody would argue that we have been living in a time of, of extreme moral shift. Right? The morals of our country and, and of the Western world are shifting dramatically in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And, and that makes sense if you understand morals, this idea of what, what, what is a moral you know, moral comes from the word mores. Right? Mores are customs and traditions. They're, they're a gathering of a bunch of people's ideas that establish acceptable boundaries. So for years, a culture, a people will gather ideas and they will say, hey, this stuff is okay. And anything outside of this stuff is not okay. But when you shift the emphasis to the Jack Sparrow compass... I make decisions not based on what everybody else thinks is okay and good. I make decisions based on what's right for me. And I think that's okay for me. So all of a sudden, when this idea begins to operate in culture more and more and more, you start losing morals. The culture loses its morals because it doesn't agree on what's out of bounds. And so what's right for you as an individual becomes the ruling idea. Right? And, and you bump into this sort of thought in categories like abortion. Right? Abortion is a moral issue. Abortion was understood by the people of our country for years and years and years as a moral issue. But there came a time when these ideas got set in place and the 60s were a wonderful hinge moment where these ideas grabbed hold. And shortly after that, abortion moved from a moral issue to a personal issue, didn't it? It became what's right for the individual in this category. And interestingly, the only individual, that the only Individual that was being considered in this was the woman. And she was told she has the right to make her own decision. I just want you to see how disorienting this becomes because she's not the only individual in this moment, is she? Where's the discussion on the individual in the womb? Where's the rally of the culture to say that woman in the womb or man in the womb has rights too? But that's lost, isn't it? There's only one person's individual thoughts that are being considered here. And our culture has made it sound ridiculous if you try and take that away from this person, right? That's an interesting quote in the outline there. Margaret Talbot, writer for New Yorker, calls her decision to, quote, end a pregnancy one of the most consequential decisions of her young life. Quote, it allowed me to claim the future I imagined for myself. 
Author and Dr. Willie Parker, an abortion provider, says, As a free human being, you are allowed to change your mind, to find yourself in different circumstances, to make mistakes. You are allowed to want your own future. Right, so what comes into play and what you hear in this discussion is, you know, back then I, was, I wasn't ready to, to raise a child. I was in no position to raise a child. That there was no way for me to be able to live the life that I had desired and to raise a child at the same time. You know, what, so what's the gatekeeper in that moment for what do you do with this decision in this situation? Personal flourishing we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Will this cause my life to flourish or will it cause my life to become harder? And there's not a thought of transcendent responsibility here. There's not a thought of how does this affect anyone beyond me? Our culture has taught us be true to yourself at all expense. And don't you let anybody tell you otherwise. And this is a, this is a hostile subject, isn't it? Right? There's a lot of emotion in this. But what you see working out is an idea that features imminence at the expense of transcendence. Right, so don't overlook that in the, in the abortion argument. There's, these are ideas that inform us. And though some of us may never consider having an abortion, we will consider all kinds of other things that are about our imminent life at the expense of transcendent things that are in our life. Jen Mitchell goes on and says, Charles Taylor writes, Many people are happy living for goals which are purely imminent. They live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent. In the secular age, cross-pressured as we are between doubt and belief, we can't know for certain if God exists, but if he does, surely he wills our good. Right? You know, if we believe in a God at all, we believe first and foremost, he wants us to be happy. And he wants our good, whatever we call good. But remember, that word good is really hard to manage once you got it from deat. Right? That good was supposed to be oriented around God so that you saw God and therefore you could see what's good. But in our world today, uh, we run around thinking God is for the things that we have called good. And we've got our Jack Sparrow compass and we look at it and we hold it up to God and we say, God, could you get about making that happen for me as quickly as possible? I think I've waited long enough. She says, which betrays the real problem. Secularism is not the problem out there. Instead, every Sunday morning, it is secular people filling our pews. They attest to loving Jesus, but accept no final goals beyond human flourishing, nor any allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing. They pray for God's kingdom to come and imagine the advent of their own happiness. In the secular age, God becomes the guarantor of our best life now. We would be wise as we navigate the terrain of our day To be aware, this is in the air we breathe. We are not immune to it. I'm going to show you one man who ventured off here in the Psalms into 
struggling in this category. But, but just imagine with me, you're setting out to cross the land of Kairos here. And you're going to live in a particular territory. Right? Remember our, our map of, of Kairos? We've got it up here. Right, so you're, you're going you're to travel through one of these territories. It's going to be a feature in your life. So just imagine for a second if what's operating in you is this self-orientation. This detached sense of transcendent things for purposes that God may have beyond me. And so now I'm going to be in these settings and, and my concern and my interest is, is me. And, and how does this affect me? How does this help me reach my goals, live my dreams, experience the good life, whatever I'm calling the good life? And so, you know, you venture into the conflict canyon over there. And people in your life, they become difficult. They're not on the same page with you. They're hostile. Uh, they're hard to manage. What's well, hard? You know, that, I, I, I've gotten where I don't like to do hard. And certainly, you know, God... God wants good things for me. You know, and I think that means God wants me to be happy. And you know, when I deal with people that are in conflict with me, that that doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel rewarding. It doesn't feel like it's headed in a good direction. So why don't I just avoid those conflicts? Why don't I just figure out who are the people that are not on board with me and, and, and I'll just stay away from them. I'll just build my life around something else. And this starts to make sense to us. Right? Maybe this year you're going to venture into the planes of pleasures. Right? There's pleasures available to you in all kinds of categories. In a, in a land, in a world that has disintegrated moral boundaries. So you don't know where the boundaries are. Where are the boundaries for pleasures? When do you know that, you know what, I've taken this pleasure too far. I'm, I'm out of bounds right now in what I'm pursuing because the gatekeeper for how far I'm going to go with these pleasures is about personal flourishing. Is this making me feel good? Am I enjoying this? Is there a sense of reward in this for me? So you live on the planes of pleasure this year in your life. If this operates in us, we have some interesting decisions to make. Maybe you'll Take a dive into the lake of love this year. I feel like Barry White should come sing right now. You know. <laughs> lake of love. Now, what's the mindset that's there when you venture in? What are you, what are you looking for this person to be in your life? Right? If, if I have been trained by the culture to look for affirmation and positive reinforcement and a sense that I'm important and, and I matter. So I, I walk into a relationship, not with something that looks like Jesus who wants to lay his life down for another person and wants to serve that other person and put, wants to put their interests ahead of my own. I, I'm tempted to walk in to watch to see what do you do for me? How do you make me feel? You know, some people have a very strange definition of love that is so common, right? You know, what's a, there's, a, there's a famous movie scene of some guy in a movie where he's all teared up. He's a famous actor, too. I can't remember his name. Um, but he looks at this woman and he says, you complete me, right? And then just how in love he is. But I, I just love those two statements going together. I love you. Because of how you make me feel. And right now some of you are going, what's wrong with that? 
uh, well, it's going to be a problem when she stops making you feel that way. <laughs> and that day's coming. Uh, just be ready. <laughs> I just don't get this image of the Son of God's love that he says, love one another the way I've loved you with this sense that I love you because of how special you make me feel. I'm sorry, can you hand me another nail real quick? Boom, boom, boom. There was no affirming, affectionate guidance from the Son of God as he laid his life down, demonstrating what love really, really looks like. So if you're going to venture into the lake of love this year, be very careful, be mindful, pay attention. What's operating in me? Am I in this to take from others that which makes me feel a certain way? And therefore, I think this relationship is good. I think it's going to work. I feel good about this. Uh, Okay, you might, for all the wrong reasons, feel good about that sort of thing. All right, there was a guy. Turn to Psalm 73 with me. I want you to go on a little journey with a guy who became enchanted by these sorts of forces. And he tells his story to us in Psalm 73. And so his way into enchantment and his way out are going to be very helpful for us to to learn our own way in and our own way out of this enchantment. So Psalm 73, verse 1. He says, Truly... God is good to Israel, to to those who are pure in heart. Stop right there because it it just goes downhill from here. So here's a guy who at some point in his experience in life, he's got a view of God that says, God is good. God has been, he's been good to me. What God does is good, right? So he's, he's got God in a good, healthy, vibrant category. He hangs a little issue on there that I think we need to take a lesson from. He says, God is good, not necessarily to everybody, but to those who are pure in heart, right? And that's not a statement for self-righteousness and statement that, hey, for those of you who have achieved the right status. No, it, it's just a condition of heart that is oriented toward God. God is good to all whose hearts are oriented toward him. The problem comes in when I get disoriented from God and my heart is no longer purely pursuing and valuing and craving God. Something else has become a competitor for that and I've become detached. I am disoriented. So he was oriented at one point toward God, then he becomes disoriented, and he begins to share with you what that sounded and felt like. Let me hop around, and I'll come back and grab some verses. Look, this is how he describes his experience in being disoriented. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the, the prosperity of the wicked, right? So he's gone from God is good to now he's not so happy anymore. He's, he's envious. He has seen something out there that has disturbed him. Look in verse 13. 
He looks at his life and he concludes this. All the moral boundaries that he's lived within all these years, something that guided him, he says in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I've been stricken and rebuked every morning, right? My life has had difficulty in it. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In verse 21. When my soul was embittered. All right, so now he's embittered. His soul has become embittered on the inside. This is no longer a man who's saying, God is good. Isn't God good? Amen. God is good. All right, now, now he is embittered on the inside. When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That's what he says. Right, this is a man... Living under a spell. This is a man who ventured out into his own land of Kairos and he lifted his eyes up and he began to see some things that caused the orientation of his life to shift. And he went from being oriented around God where God was good to oriented around something else. Some different life. He saw people. He saw smiles on their faces. He saw something that they enjoyed. He saw things going their way. And he looked at his own life and he said, you know, my life is hard. My life has some boundaries in it. I don't go outside those boundaries. I keep my hands clean. I'm innocent of some of the things that that guy over there, he's not innocent of it. And he's pretty happy about it. He's smiling his head off right now. I'm over here not having a good time. And look at him. This is what's going on on the inside of him. He has become aware of another good life, if you will. Charles Taylor says this, Every person in every society lives with or by some conception of what human flourishing is. What constitutes a fulfilled life? What makes life really worth living? What would we most admire people for? We can't help asking these and related questions in our lives and our struggles to answer them define the view or views that we try to live by. Right, this is what the psalmist means when he says, my feet had almost slipped. It's at one point, his, his understanding, his orientation is about God. At another point, he has lifted his eyes somewhere else and he has relocated the good life into another place. And his, his attitude has changed. He's no longer happy about the life God has for him. And he's living by a different set of thoughts. He says another way of getting at something like the issue raised above in terms of the within or without is to ask, does the highest the best life involve our seeking or acknowledging or serving a good which is beyond, in the sense of independent of human flourishing. It's clear that in the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, the answer to this question is affirmative. Loving, worshiping God is the ultimate end. And at one point, that was okay with this psalmist. He lived with that transcendent thought operating in him. What does it mean to live a life that brings glory to God? What does it mean to take pleasure in God and delight in him and worship him? When he lived with that orientation around God, God is good. When that becomes unplugged, 
Now he's mad and he's angry. He's not happy. And he's like a brute toward, like a beast toward God. He is hostile. He is withdrawing his affections from God. Right, this, this is a man enchanted. He's lost sight of transcendent things. He only sees imminent things. And look at, look at the list of imminent things in verse 4. This is what he's staring at. He looks at these folks, verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity, the prosperity of the wicked. Here's what he saw. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this this people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now that last phrase there, in our day, that could become our reference point. How do I know if my life is a good life? Well, because I'm always at ease, increasing in stuff and things and riches that go my way. That little definition for the psalmist began to be the thing that enchanted him. He began to want that in such a way that it disrupted whether God was even good to him or not. Be careful when you enter the land, lest you forget God. All right, this is a disoriented man. This man has lost sight of the goodness of God in some way. Not only has he forgotten God, because he's not calling to mind the things that we know about God in this moment. Not only has he forgotten God, he's become hostile toward God because he's, he's lost his sense of being able to understand and explain why life is hard. Why is there suffering in this world? And how do we get out of suffering? Well, if you buy the wrong ideas, you get out of it by finding something that's easier than what you're doing right now and something that's got a little bit more money coming your way. And that becomes a solution for a lot of people. It's too tempting to just say, let me find an easier way of doing life than this. Let me find an easier relationship than this. Let me find an easier job than this. Let me find an easier church than this. Right? We just want something easier. Without a transcendent understanding that God might have us in this location. And when you lose sight of, you get disoriented, you end up with this sound. I was brutish, verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. How many guys can relate to that? I mean, humbly, honestly, how many guys have, maybe not physically, shaken your fist at God? Because life 
isn't what you had thought it was going to be. And you've navigated some difficult seasons and settings. And somehow you've lost a sense of whether God could be good and life could feel like this. And so you've, you've jettisoned God and you've put him at a distance. And you're not ready to be done with him, but you are PO'd at him. And, and you don't have a lot of warmth and affection toward him in these moments. You're angry at God. I just, want, I just want you to explore. Can you do this with me for a second? Explore the anatomy of your anger. How did you get there? I don't, I don't just want you to walk away from here going, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to be angry at God. Oh, okay, I'll write that down. I'm glad there's some space in the margin here. Don't be angry with God. Well, congratulations. I'm glad you got a tip out of that. I want to ask, why are you angry? Have you, have you tracked with the understanding that, that you can become angry because what's operating in us at any given moment is personal flourishing? Is this going my way? Is this serving my interests? Does this subscribe to the ideas for me that I've always hoped for or I've been recently wanting for? And I have cut off any sense of transcendence. There are purposes beyond me that these circumstances answer to. There is activity of God for God, for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God that are beyond my imminence, my moment, my right now. They're transcendent things. Be careful what becomes labeled as the good life. Look at this thought from James Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. He says, what we love is a specific vision of the good life. An implicit picture of what we think human flourishing looks like. Such a picture of human flourishing will have all sorts of components. Implicit in it will be assumptions about what good relationships look like. What a just economy and distribution of resources look like. That's a heady way of just saying life ain't fair. Right? Just distribution of resources. Somebody else has got more than what you got. And it ain't fair. Right? What sorts of recreation and play we value. How we ought to relate to nature and the non-human environment. What sorts of work count as good work? What flourishing families look like and much more. Right? And you know, as Christians, that last one there is a big one for us. Because we value this nuclear invention of God, the family. So what does a flourishing family look like? So we can stare at that and then, you know, we've got, a, we've got an image of what that's supposed to be. Right? We've got an ideal of what all these things are supposed to look like. And then we stare back at our experience and our life and our families and we stare back at that thing and, and we're informing that with some good life ideas from who knows where we're getting it from. We stare back at our situation and there is just this discontent and disconnect that sort of sets in. He says our ultimate love is oriented by and to a picture of what we think it looks like for us to live well. And that picture then governs, shapes, and motivates our decisions and our actions. 
A vision of the good life captures our hearts, right? This is why the psalmist says, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Those whose hearts stay oriented the right way, God will be good to you. Not that you'll make him good, but that you will feel that he is good. A vision of the good life captures our hearts and imaginations, not by providing a set of rules or ideas, but by painting a picture of what it looks like for us to flourish and live well. Do you understand? You could be painting those pictures in your imagination. You imagine a world a certain way and you take out your color set and you begin to paint that picture of what it should be like. And that picture then becomes the good life. He goes on and says, We are attracted to a vision of the good life that has been painted for us in stories and myths, images and icons. It's not primarily our minds that are captivated, but rather our imaginations that are captured. And when our imagination is hooked, we're hooked. The goods and aspects of human flourishing painted by these alluring pictures of the good life begin to seep into the fiber of our everyday non-cognitive being, i.e. our hearts, and thus govern and shape our decisions and actions and habits. So be very aware, deat, this knowledge in an age of information, It brings to you all kinds of stuff for you to look at so that your imagination can go to work painting with it. I'm going to paint the good life for me. What's the good life for me? Well, where are you going to get your colors from? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, other people's lives. I'm just going to to check out what everybody else is doing, how they're living. This looks good. That looks unfair. They get to do that a whole lot more than my family gets to do that. Oh, look, everything's peaches over there. While my life's a living hell. Right? So, all right, so we're constructing our imaginative world of the good life. It's almost like we're trying to figure out where we are. Right? We're trying to, we're trying to orient our lives. But, you know, in this sense, we're almost like, you know, what a, what a sonar device does for a submarine. Right? It, it, it sends out a ping. That ping bounces off something, it comes back, and it lets you know where you are. Ping, here's where you are. Ping, here's where you are. Ping, here's where you are. So, you know, I don't know if you're a, a family with kids below the age of five, you subscribe to families with kids below the age of five, and you ping. You ping, and you ping, and you can't believe they're going on their third vacation in the last two years. Ping, and you hadn't gone anywhere. Ping, ping. Your life stinks, doesn't it? Ping. Look how smiley the husband is in all the pictures. Ping. Ping. <laughs> right? You know, in whatever category you happen to be in, right? We, we try to figure out where we are based on whatever it is we're subscribing to and building our imaginary, ideal, good life. But here, you know, this is where the, the seepage of today's ways of feeling our way through life can pollute us. Remember, none of us are going to escape the temptation to personal flourishing. I've got my own version of the good life that I've been building and I want my life to be good based on what I think is good. And the other thing that we're not going to escape is losing a sense of transcendence for the sake of imminence and only paying attention to imminent things. And we become blind 
to transcendent things. We stop seeing those things as valuable. Now, these sound like stupid questions. Would you have said that Jesus had a good life? Did Jesus live the good life? Kind of just depends on what you ping off of, huh? He's a king. Let's ping him off a few kings. Did he lead a good life? Born in a manger, lived in poverty. He was a god to be worshipped. You ping that off of people's treatment of him. People who didn't respect him, tried to force him underneath their authority, didn't value his message or the life that he lived, and drove nails through his wrist at the conclusion of his life and let him die in open shame the way Roman crucifixion was designed to put you to open shame and a slow death right in front of everybody naked. Did Jesus leave a good life? Well, if you only stare through the lens of eminence, you might conclude, no, not really. It's not until you look through transcendence that you say, he led the ultimate good life, didn't he? Because you and I today are living in the good of his life, are we not? He looked at himself and looked transcendently down the road to us, upward to the glory of God. He found reasons outside of himself to do and live in difficult places. And we can't lose that. And it's modeled for us outward. You know, did, did Joseph live a good life? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Did Joseph live a good life? Betrayed by his brothers? Sold into slavery? Falsely accused by some woman in the place where he worked? Thrown into a dungeon? Forgotten there? At, at what point would you ping your life off that and say, Oh, I want some of that. <laughs> That looks awesome. Joseph, how do, you, how do you do that, man? Nobody wants that life. And it's not until you have transcendence to settle upon his life later on in Genesis. And he becomes aware as his brothers are crying in front of him. And all they're aware of is the shame of what they did in betraying him. And he sees transcendence and brings good news to their souls and says, no, no, no. God sent me here ahead of you to preserve life. Now, he didn't put an asterisk there. No, I've been through a living hell along the way. But because transcendence swallowed up his imminent frame. And he saw something beyond him. He saw a purpose in God. He saw the preservation of the Messiah through a people that were promised to bring the Messiah into the world. He didn't see all that right here. He saw that when he looked outside of himself and he saw God is at work in his life. See, that's what it means to be God-oriented. To see God at work in our midst. Listen, when you're, when you're doing life, this is, this is a huge temptation for any of us. It's just very tempting to draw all of your sonar readings from your own life, 
pinged off of the good life that you have been building in your mind for years and years and years. And that image becomes a thing that tells you where you are. Just, just be, be aware, right? Can we all hold hands here on this side of the land of Kairos and we go across? Can you just be aware? I just want you to be aware that you're going to be tempted to build an imaginary good life in your mind. And somewhere along the way, it's possible this year, coming years, you could sound like the psalmist in Psalm 73 because your life doesn't look like the good life. And and next week, we're going to get a chance to see what fixes that for him and what fixes that for us. But I don't want to rush off and leave people who you're here this morning And God is at a distance today. Because there's a little bit of, you know, God, if I could, I think I'd like to ask for a refund. I I don't like the way this has played out. I don't think this story is a good story, God. You're in the Bible. Let me just tell you that first. Because some people feel like, oh, I can't even say that kind of stuff to Christians because they'll throw a scripture verse at me and tell me get over it. You're, you're in the Bible. You're in Psalm 73. You're crossing land. And this kind of stuff happens. And part of the reason why I've taken a while to paint these pictures, hopefully at, you know, well with some detail, is, is so that this becomes real to where you are. This might really be where you are. And your walk with God, I can cheer you on. I can say, keep going with God. I can give you reasons. We'll do that some next week. But you have, you have retreated from God out of a sense of self-protection. You're trying to protect yourself from God right now because you're like a beast toward Him. Because He won't give you the good life that you've imagined and painted in your own mind. And, and, and as long as you cling to that, that imminent life, and ignore the transcendent things of God, you will not draw near to God. You don't have any reasons to. You just keep bumping into the fact that God won't give me what I really, really, really want. Why would I come near that God? It's not that I don't want God in my life. I just, I just don't like how this is working out. And so, you know, you enter this year with a lack of friendliness toward God and delighting in God and enjoyment of God. And, and, and I can't stand the thought you're going to travel two more days with that in your backpack. But I want you to see it. And I want you to stand with the psalmist this morning and be able to say, God, that, that's kind of how I feel. All right. Start there. And let God undo that. Let God change that. Let God shift these things that have creeped in unnoticed in us and give us a heart that restores affection and enjoyment of God by restoring some transcendent things that we will talk more about next week. Let's stand up together.
Lord, we are a people as we have been studying some things in this series. We are a people who are feeling our way through life. And you have given us feelings, Lord, so that's not completely out of bounds. But Lord, there would be some here this morning who just don't feel good about life. They don't feel good about what's happening and what's not happening. They don't feel good about the difficulties that they see in their own life and yet they see others who seem to have it easier. And they raise a question about you. About whether you have done something wrong short sold them on the life that they were supposed to have but there's no possible way a perfect loving merciful caring self-sacrificing God could even have a category that you've done something wrong that just doesn't exist and so Lord if it feels that way there's something wrong with our perspective we have lost our way and Lord we confess that to you Lord you cannot be wrong Lord but this just doesn't feel right you help us help us to find the place with the psalmist who said surely God is good to those who are pure in heart oh God help us restore our hearts Lord from wherever they have wandered some foreign land where we accuse you rather than delight in you. Listen, while you're just having your head down and just thinking and listening for the Lord to speak to you, maybe you're here, coming, listening, and you have to settle a big question before you can take on some of these secondary questions. And that that big question is, have you... Have you ever oriented your heart and life toward God? Ever? Have you come to a place where you recognized that you were apart from God, that your heart was away from God, that you wanted a life that didn't have God as the ultimate, it didn't have God as the center of it all, it, it wasn't the reference point of all reference points. You didn't mind God being in the picture just didn't have him as the very center of it all listen this is what the bible is about the bible is about taking every human being whose hearts at some point are all in that condition every one of us and restoring us to god and that's what jesus christ came to do he came to restore us to god He came to do what had to be done so that a perfect, righteous, loving, holy God could be in a relationship with a people who have a little bit of a tendency to be selfish. (laughs) 
So here's what I'm not suggesting you need to do. You, you don't need to make things right between you and God. You can't. That's what Jesus Christ did. He did the work. He lived the life to make things right between you and God. Here's what you have to do. You have to decide whether you want to receive that or not. You have to come to a place where you decide, Lord, I I want you restored in my life as the center of it all. As the God who is over everything about me. And whatever other dreams I have and whatever other hopes I have for a life to be lived, Lord, those are secondary to whatever dreams you have for me and whatever purpose you have for my life. Listen, if you've ever prayed a prayer to, to receive that, it's a significant moment in your life. You'll remember that. I remember it. It was February of 1979 where I knew young religious guy that I was that God was in the picture but he was not in the center of it all so if you're here this morning and you're saying you know I don't, I don't know that I've ever come to a point of receiving what Christ did that way so that he would be the center of it all but you're here this morning and you want to do that well do it right now well, how do I do that put those thoughts into words and I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to pray a prayer and I hope it represents what you're feeling in your own heart if you're wanting to do this. So that from this day forward, God's just not in the picture with you somewhere. He's the center of it all. If you want to do that, pray this, pray this with me. Say, Lord Jesus Christ, need you and I recognize that and I see even though I've acknowledged you you've been much much less important than you deserve to be and you haven't had the ultimate place in my life I've lived for many things I've wanted many things honestly more than I've wanted you God, today, I want to be reoriented. I, I want you to be at the center of it all. I want to live from this moment forward a life that you have explained to me, that you have explained good and evil. You have led me into it. So, God, this morning, I turn away from doing life my own way. And I submit and surrender my life to you. And I recognize by faith that I can only do that because Jesus Christ did something for me. He came and he died in my place to forgive all of my sins and to present me to God. Lord Jesus, thank you for doing that for me. I believe in you. I trust in you. I hope in you. From this day forward, Lord, you are the center of it all. In Jesus' name. 
And Father, I want to pray for those that are here this morning. They've long ago prayed that prayer. Or they have begun years ago to know you and to walk with you. But like the psalmist, they have found themselves in a place where they've, their feet almost slipped. They, they, they lifted their eyes and looked outside of you, comparing themselves to others, longing for things, imagining a particular good life. And, and they lost sight of you. And Lord, they're here this morning. Well, they really don't like that. They don't like that about their life. They don't like that they found themselves in this place. And Lord, this morning there is mercy in this room. And God, they need what the psalmist here needed. Lord, they they need a fresh sense of seeing you. Lord, we, we prayed for that this morning as we gathered for prayer early this morning. One of the men prayed for seeing God. An ability to see you, Lord. That, that's, that's the only thing that rescued this man. If he kept seeing what he was seeing, he would remain as brutish and angry and disconnected as he was. But Lord, there came a moment when he saw something of you that changed his perspective. And Lord, we need that. Lord, dayat. This knowledge and information has come and made promises to us. It's provided information to us. It's alluring. But Lord, it's not what we need. We need you. And we need a fresh glimpse of you. So Lord, I pray that. I pray that for this week. Lord, I pray that as we're finding times to pray and as we're reading, reading through Psalm 73 and the rest of that passage, reading through Deuteronomy 6 and thinking well, that you would do a work of restoring our hearts from the places that we've wandered. Lord, draw us near to you, Lord. That's the sense that we need. Your nearness is our good. Lord, let us conclude that above all other things. God, whether we've got the good life isn't the issue. The question is, do we have your life? There's nothing greater than that. So Lord, this week, would you draw us near to yourself? Convince us all the more. God, we're going to come back next week and take a little deeper look here. So that as we venture across the landscape of our lives, Lord, we might do it. Being able to say, the nearness of God is my good. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.